Thank you for listening to the Coal Mind Podcast. This is David Cole from Dallas, Texas, and it's September 20th, 2021. Today, my guest is my longtime friend, Matt Rinaldi. Matt's a lawyer here in Dallas who served for two terms in our state legislature, where he was repeatedly recognized as one of its most conservative members. Roughly two months ago, Matt became the new chairman of the Texas Republican Party, a position of great visibility and influence in our state's politics. I invited Matt to come by and discuss where Texas stands today on several important issues and where he sees us going, both in the 2022 election and further down the road. All right, Matt, welcome aboard. You've been the chairman of our state Republican Party now for a couple of months. How's things going? How's the GOP looking in the Lone Star State? Going well. You know, getting everything up and running like you would with any business that you just take over as effectively CEO of and getting everything going with fundraising and and management. And we're looking to have a pretty good election in 2020 with Biden's considerable overreach. Well, you're doing something right because the Texas Tribune, who was no friend of you when you were serving in the legislature, actually wrote a positive profile about you. And that seemed like a first for Matt Rinaldi. Yes, that absolutely was a first and it was weird. (laughs) Yeah. <laughs> hey, you know, it might become a habit, and then what, then what will we do? Might I don't wonder what I'm doing wrong. Bipartisan or something, who knows? <laughs> so a few questions about sort of issues of the day. We have this disaster we've been in, state of declarations now for a year and a half. We are in a state where the governor is famous for weak power. Our legislature only sits every couple of years. We try to not have centralized government, yet we've had highly centralized control for this period of time. Is this the new normal? Do we need to do something to change the centralization of power that we've had as a result of this pandemic? First, let me go. The governor is perceived as being weak, but I think the governor has a lot stronger position in this state than people think, mainly because he can veto bills when the legislature is out of session and they can't override it. Plus, he has a line item veto. Plus, he has the bully pulpit, which is incredibly powerful. The governor can pretty much set any course he wants when his uh, party controls both chambers like they have here. Secondly, should something be done about the considerable executive power from this pandemic? Yeah, I've been a huge advocate of that. I was very disappointed they didn't do it. I know the Senate passed a bill which considerably curbed executive power. I think we need to, and I think we can limit the duration of the emergency without a legislative approval. I think we can limit the amount of things that can be done. And by the way, I think for, uh, I think it's section 418 of the government code right now, which defines the emergency power of the governor. I think that is fairly restrained. The problem is the Supreme Court has held no one had standing to challenge it. A legislator doesn't, a citizen doesn't, a business that's shut down doesn't. So who can challenge it? I think that's what they need to address. They need to have citizen standing or business standing or clearly define who has standing to challenge it. That's an interesting aspect of it because that's that's been a part of the exercise of central power by the governor during the pandemic. He has what power he has by statute. The Supreme Court has been very reluctant to intervene to put brakes on that. Do you see or would you believe it'd be useful to at least consider a more expansive role for judicial review of the governor's actions pursuant to his emergency powers? Yeah, I, I supported that and Representative Matt Schaefer actually carried a, a bill to do just that and an amendment as well. And the amendment was struck down on a point of order. I do know that the, the governor's office obviously was opposed to that amendment specifically. I, I know that. they were very opposed to that because that's really the crux of this, right? Our, the emergency powers aren't very broad. It basically allows them to control the movement of people and the occupancy of buildings. It's really geared towards hurricanes. And I mean, where do mask mandates fall in it? Where do, you know, other things that, that we've done. Un- unreviewable don't. seems to be where they fall. Un- unreviewable. Yeah. So basically you can do whatever you want. 
It sounds like there there may be some common ground there, frankly, yeah. between your side of the aisle and others who have been critical for other reasons of the governor's power. Let's look at that election. You mentioned we, we do have an election coming up once we get past redistricting and all that. In 2020, many pundits said there was there'd be a blue wave would hit Texas and impacted in some way, perhaps a lot, perhaps a little. It didn't seem to hit very hard. Do you think there could be such a wave coming in 2022? What do you see about the that kind of longer-term trends in the state, whether the state is trending naturally be more Democratic or more Republican over time, and what that may mean for our next election coming up? You know, I think the trend is that you had a Republican president that effectively realigned the party structure, right? So you see Republicans being more of a working class party now, and you see Democrats being more of a corporate rich person's party, I guess you could say. And for Texas, that worked out as us being closer. For states like Missouri, it became more red. But I see I see a swing. I think that align, realignment's done. So I see a swing back to the Republican Party, as you would in any midterm election involving sure. a president who's been deeply controversial. I mean, you got to say, he's got to be at least as controversial as two Republicans as Trump was to Democrats. And I think independents are caught in the middle right now. And I don't think they particularly like what's going on. So I think we're going to have a pretty good election. Well, and that's one of the issues where there's been a great deal of scrutiny brought to the administration's policies is the question of border security. Mm -hmm. Uh, A lot of people in Texas, for obvious reasons, we have a very long border with Mexico, feel strongly about it. The governor has been outspoken about state-led efforts to do various policy initiatives to ensure security at the border and deal with border uh, issues. What should Texas be doing about the national border that's staying in its lane and not conflicting with matters of national policy? And I recognize there may be room for debate about what the appropriate role of the national government is, but Texas isn't a country either. So how much should we be doing by way of border security, and are we doing enough? Should we be doing more? I think we definitely should be doing more. I mean, I think we should be doing everything within our power and, of course, pushing pushing the envelope a bit because the federal government's completely completely abandoned its role of, of policing our borders. I mean, I've been down there. It's it, it's crazy. I think Texas can, of course, fund DPS on the border. When we were down there, the DPS presence was stronger than the uh, federal presence. I think that was important. I think we should continue building a wall, funding Trump's wall, and build a physical border over at least widely tracked areas. And I think lastly, I think we need to put pressure on Mexico to do their part in policing their border, and of course, at least not encouraging it. We have state-built roads that run over the border. Commercial traffic comes over those roads. We have the ability to police that commercial traffic, and we have the ability to significantly hinder it, should we choose to. That's a pressure point that I don't think has been used, and I think it could be. It got very dark in our state back in February. Hopefully, we took some action during the last legislative sessions to try to not have that happen again. How are we doing on that part of our infrastructure in this state, and do we need to do more, and what can we look forward to Republicans suggesting as constructive steps to take in that area? We took some steps last session, generally replacing personnel and and, and, and structural changes. I think we need to do more. I think we need to ensure that there are incentives for excess capacity to be kept to adjust for uncertainties. I think the problem right now is they were playing it too close. So in February, when they didn't estimate correctly and saw some capacity go offline, it was catastrophic. And I think we need to change that. But I think it's more than just changing PUC personnel. I think it's a bigger problem in the state with the way we incentivize energy sources. I think we need to stop subsidizing certain energy sources over other energy sources uh, and let 
the ones that are most reliable and best predominate in the market. That sounds like it's probably more traditional fossil fuel based. Yeah, but nuclear too. Okay. As opposed Um, to say wind and solar. Well, wind and solar, yeah. I mean, wind and solar weren't as reliable when we needed it. However, I think nuclear is is a good option as well that 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 we're we're not building currently. Should we connect ourselves to one of the big two North American grids? I, I, I think we should stay independent, but I think we should do it correctly. They have their problems with the grids too. I mean, some of the largest outages in United States history were because of issues happening in Canada or New York sure. um, that, that affect larger portions of the grid. So I don't want to be dependent on what happens in Ohio as to whether or not we get power. We have control over it, and I think that's good. We just need to do it correctly. Our legislative sessions this year brought us the new uh, SB8. Some people call it the official name is the Texas Heartbeat Act. It's a, some would say innovative, others would say devilish, new way of enforcing certain restrictions on abortion, private citizens bringing cases. A question about that model of these private actors that are incentivized to pursue a civil penalty. Could that structure be applied, say, by a blue state to something like ownership of an AR-15 and produce something that might be less desirable from a policy perspective for someone of your party? Every every tactic can be used either way, and I think that's one of it's one of the downsides of the breakdown in law, impartial law, impartial constitutional law, completely disconnected from politics that we've seen in the polarization of the two parties that's gone on over the past 10 years or so. And I think that's the downside of it. It becomes the ends justify the means all the time, somewhat because like in the the case of Roe v. Wade, you're trying to comply with a court decision that we believe was wrongly decided in the first place and doesn't comport with the Constitution. Whereas I think everybody would prefer to make it a criminal penalty this is what we were forced to do. Are there other policy initiatives in Texas besides abortion restrictions where this kind of framework, either identical to what we have with this new law or something modified along the same lines, might be a desirable thing to consider in upcoming legislative sessions? I don't have anything specific because abortion's a unique issue. That, that was particularly a response to the, the structure of the precedent in place and, and what we needed to do. I don't see anything else where we need to do that. And actually, even in Second Amendment opinions, I think uh, the court hasn't set a framework of striking down Second Amendment opinions to the same Second Amendment laws to the same extent as they have abortion laws. So I don't even know if that would be needed from your side, of course. Test. Actually, I did something similar to that in the Sanctuary City bill to enforce that. So what we had with Sanctuary Cities was Democrat sheriffs were not enforcing detainer orders in cities, and there was a criminal penalty in there, but that would be enforced by the Democrat DAs in the cities, which they wouldn't enforce it. So I put something in there where any citizen could make a complaint to the attorney general's office. And then if the attorney general investigated found they were having a sanctuary city policy, then they would be forced to bring a quo warranto action to remove them from office. Critical question for the state. I was looking the other day to help one of our children with some homework and was astonished by how many mascots and official things we have in Texas, mammals, foods, so on and so forth. What mascots does our state most need right now that (laughs) you're excited to pursue adding to our portfolio in the next few years? Okay, this is like my hill to die on that I it's just completely not worth it. Right? Matt Rinaldi does not stand for the state. I had a policy like of voting against any awareness days, mascots, official anything of Texas, and I would be pretty consistent in that. 
In fact, the only time I departed from my principles was to, to, to honor John Wayne, I think, over four years. <laughs> Thank you very much, Matt. It was kind of you to come by. I appreciate your articulate insights on state politics, and I wish you the best of luck in the next couple of years as you lead the party in these challenging times. Thank you. appreciate it. Today, I welcomed my guest, Matt Rinaldi, the new statewide chairman of the Texas Republican Party. Matt and I talked about his views on issues such as the governor's emergency power, border security, the Texas Heartbeat Act, and whether the state of Texas has too many official mascots. I appreciate Matt coming by, and I wish him well in his new position. For upcoming episodes, I expect to have more interviews with other notable voices from around Texas and to address the recent cries of treason about a top general's outreach to his counterparts in other countries during the waning days of the Trump administration. You can subscribe to this podcast on any of the main directories, and if you like it, I encourage you to join other happy listeners and leave a good review on Apple Podcasts. I appreciate you listening, and I look forward to sharing with you again soon.